You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Clancy Martin, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, also the author of a bunch of books, some philosophy books, which are also kind of memoirs, and then also uh, a bunch of fiction. Among the fiction I have with me here, How to Sell, which was your first book, first novel, right? And then also most recent book, which is How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of a Suicidal Mind, and also Love and Lies, an essay on truthfulness, deceit, and the growth and care of erotic love. Welcome, Clancy. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Greg. I'm really honored to be here. Well, you know, this book, How Not to Kill Yourself, it touches on suicide, of course, but it also touches on addiction. And I think one of your points is that you can become addicted to the idea of suicide. I mean, you can't become addicted to suicide because you really, you know, can only do it once, but you can be addicted to, I guess, suicide attempts. You can also be addicted to dwelling on suicide. And, you know, the thing that puzzles me, even though Camus said that suicide was really the only truly important philosophical question, and you mentioned that there are, you know, philosophers do think a lot about suicide, and we all know about the classics, we know about Seneca and others. It does seem like it's kind of under-theorized, right? I mean, it does seem like it doesn't get nearly as much attention in the philosophical literature as you might think, the question of to be or not to be. And then, and also addiction. It seems like addiction, we all know plenty of people who are addicts, if we're not addicts ourselves. And many of us do know suicides. I certainly know a couple of suicides. And yet this also doesn't seem to be something, addiction and suicides, these are things that don't seem to get the bulk of the philosophical attention. Why do you suppose that is? Well, I think your point is a really important one. The World Health Organization estimates that 10% of the world population suffers from either frequent or chronic suicidal ideation. So whether or not one is making attempts, thinking about suicide an awful lot, maybe all day long, frequently all day long. And they list the number one obstacle to suicide prevention, which is almost always in the top 10 leading causes of death of human beings worldwide. The number one obstacle is stigma and taboo and people just being afraid to talk about it. And this particularly dismaying in the context of this particular epidemic, because the best medicine that we know of for suicidal thinking is just talking to another human being about suicidal thinking. So the cure is right there in front of us. Imagine if we could have cured COVID just by talking to each other. That's really all we need to do, or it's the main thing that we need to do. Another useful thing to do would be to get a little bit more sensible about our relationship with guns, because when people attempt suicide with a gun, they succeed far more often than when they attempt uh, with other means. So stigma and taboo, uh, people not talking about it enough. Now, in the ancient period among philosophers, both in the West and the East, the topic of suicide was quite widely discussed and theorized. And in general, we had a much more rich relationship, I guess, with the concept of taking one's own life then, because 
one could take one's own life and people could view it as a very bad decision in the ancient period, but one could take one's own life and people could view it as a very praiseworthy decision in the ancient period. And it depended upon the context of the decision-making, basically. And very often it was required of people to go in front of some kind of committee, basically, some collective group of elders who you would say, okay, this is why I've decided to take my life at this time. Either I've suffered the loss of all of my money and my loved ones or common cause, or I'm at the absolute height of my happiness. I'll never get happier than this. Also, not an uncommonly listed cause for taking one's own life in the ancient period. But then along comes St. Augustine and a group, and now we're talking about the Western tradition, and a group of Christians who think that the best way to get into heaven is to take their lives as quickly as possible so that they can avoid the temptations of the devil, that this earth is the devil's playground on the view of this particular sect of Christianity. And they start killing themselves an awful lot. And St. Augustine thinks to himself, we've got to put a stop to this. And he writes a lot of very brilliant and very influential arguments against suicide, in part relying on some previous arguments against suicide made by people like Aristotle. And Aristotle also the first person to really theorize addiction in the Western tradition, which again, also under-discussed, grossly under-discussed in the Western tradition until quite recently, actually. And I think for the same reasons, taboo, shame, people not wanting to admit that they're addicts, philosophers not wanting to admit that they're addicts. But in any event, the Judeo-Christianity has the Abrahamic religions generally congeal around this idea that suicide is a sin and there are all these horrible punishments of various societies in the West inflict upon not just the dead bodies of suicides, not allowing them to be buried in a churchyard, for example, or cutting them into pieces and leaving them at a crossroads or defacing them in various ways, but also upon the families of those people who have lost their loved one to suicide and uh, financial penalties, sometimes even criminal penalties. This happens in the East as well. And so we get this incredible taboo. People, even today, when I talk to people about suicide, they're afraid to talk about it. And very often they're afraid to admit, they feel shame to admit that a suicide has taken place in their family. And it's very frustrating for someone like me who is trying to honestly just trying to help people who struggle with this kind of thinking, because as I say, the best way for us to recognize that our thinking, generally speaking, when we're feeling this way is deeply confused thinking, is just to talk about it, to break the spirals of downward thinking that go with a suicidal inclination by talking to someone else who can show you, yeah, I understand that you're thinking this is the right thing to do right now, but you're just confused. Yeah, and we all get confused. And in general, when we make decisions out of confusion, we make poor decisions, whatever they happen to be. Well, do you think, I mean, we tend to medicalize it in the modern world where we treat it as if it's a form of irrationality or insanity. And so I wonder, do you think that we just ported over the idea of sinfulness and just kind of mutated it into some kind of insanity? Because one of the things I found really one of the quotes in your book that I found really compelling was you said, thinking about the rational reasons for killing yourself helps you <laughs> to manage the irrational reasons for killing yourself. 
Yeah, I think this is a really, again, very helpful question and profound insight that you've made. I do think that we have, things are comfortable when we can pigeonhole them as aberrant sorts of behaviors. And one way we pigeonhole things that make us nervous is by saying, okay, well, now we're going to say this behavior is crazy. And now we have a safe home for it and we don't have to, we feel somehow protected from it. And I do think for a lot of things, we've replaced the concept of sinful now with the the notion of, well, it's mental illness of one kind or another. And the fact of the matter is that if all of the thoughts that we had in any given day were just broadcast to the world as we were thinking them, all of us would would probably be a very good thing in some ways. But initially, all of us would look at each other and think, oh my gosh, look at the thoughts he is having, or look at the thoughts she's having. You have so many wild and disparate thoughts in the course of a day, and you don't act on all of them. Similarly, with the thought of taking one's own life, if you start rationally thinking through this process, you will start to realize, okay, I actually have lots of very, very good reasons. I have reasons will help me to shift my beliefs about this so that I can still have the thought of taking my own life float through my head, but I don't have to act on the basis of that thought. I don't have to plan on the basis of that thought. I can recognize it as a real thought, but not one that I have to cling to or focus on. Well, the other thing I think you said in the book is that although the number of people who kill themselves or attempt to kill themselves, at least the way we kind of classify it, is relatively low. Perhaps a lot of people, perhaps even the majority of us, are kind of trying to extinguish ourselves in one way or another. And I think you cited this statistic that 25% of alcoholics try to kill themselves at one point. But in in a way, I mean, like 100% of them are really kind of trying to kill themselves potentially. It's hard to say, I mean, when we think about the, you know, Club 27, right? All those rock and roll folks who, I mean, is it fair to say that Amy Winehouse died of alcohol poisoning? I mean, isn't it probably more realistic to say that she committed suicide in perhaps a slow way rather than a fast way? Yeah, I think this, again, wonderful point, what we sometimes call parasuicidal behavior or these people who take their addictions to extremes such that it looks like it's just really a form of self-destruction are just going about suicide in a different kind of a way. In um, one of the earliest works in English that we have on suicide by a philosopher and theologian by the name of John Sim, John Sim actually says that those people who pursue, he has a very, he's still one of these suicide is a, is a sin types, but he says that the, the, it's a worse sin to pursue suicide slowly through some kind of self-destructive behaviors than just to actually take one's own life in a, in, a, in a quick act, because he says this the desire for self-destruction combined with the self-deception, with lying to yourself about what you are actually pursuing. But what I want to say is that, as you suggest, look, we all engage in all of these forms of running away from ourselves. We distract ourselves with our phone. We have an addiction to, you're experiencing some kind of pain or dismay. And so you think, oh, well, I should buy something on Amazon or I should go check my social media account. Or those of us who, I know I used to be uh, a terrible abuser of this drug alcohol. 
it was for a long time a very reliable medicine for me in its way. When I was suffering the pain of being clancy, I'd just be like, okay, I'm going to go drink a couple beers. And suddenly the pain of being clancy would dissipate, you know, and I wouldn't feel so oppressed by myself. And the more we think about all of these little addictions we have, the more we might have a tendency to recognize, I think, that these are ways of running away from ourselves rather than ways of accepting ourselves. And, and the, the person who attempts suicide is just kind of on the extreme end of that scale. And as you say, cases like Amy Winehouse and other people who engage in more flagrantly self-destructive lifestyles that often end in their own deaths are just further along the spectrum on those same addictive behaviors that all of us engage in, in in different ways. I remember there's this wonderful discussion between Thich Nhat Hanh, the great um, Buddhist monk, and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. when Martin Luther King Jr. is saying, well, why are these monks burning themselves alive in protest of the Vietnam War in Christianity? We think of suicide as a sin. And Thich Nhat Hanh replies to Martin Luther King Jr., you misunderstand what they're doing. They're not committing suicide. Suicide is the desire for the annihilation of what one is. They're not desiring an annihilating themselves. They're just burning their bodies. They know that their self is going to continue after their body is gone. And from a Buddhist perspective, when you include the concept of reincarnation, the idea of being addicted to suicide actually moves from one life to the next. They say, if you commit suicide in this life, you're actually making your situation worse because you're that much more likely to repeat the behavior in a subsequent life. So now's a good chance to try and break the cycle. Mm -hmm. You know, one of, when you described a lot of your suicide attempts, and I lost track of how many there were, and it was kind of hard to d determine what, you know, exactly whether it was an attempt or not. I think you said something like, Every time you tried to commit suicide, you were always leaving something to chance, right? You weren't, you know, if you wanted to make sure that there was a hundred percent probability of success, you could have done that, but you decided to kind of make every attempt kind of a, a roll of the dice to some degree and kind of put yourself in the hands of fate. And, and I found that interesting because sometimes people will say that addiction is driven by a personalities that need some kind of control. And yet this is kind of like a giving up of control to some degree, right? When you either succumb to alcohol or succumb to suicidal ideations. And, and even you talk about when you join AA, it's about kind of relinquishing some type of control. Yeah, it's just a really nice insight. There's one theory of how to help people with suicidal ideation, and it's called burden theory. And the idea is that people who are struggling with suicidal ideation haven't yet learned the importance of letting themselves be burdensome to others, just letting themselves be a burden. They feel like they have to carry all the weight of themselves on their own shoulders. And so they get overburdened and, and then they can't take it anymore. And what I like about this particular theory, which I think has some truth to it and is, will resonate with some people who struggle with suicidal ideation, is that it relates to this idea of yours of control. And, you know, in one sense, part of the paradoxicality of a suicide attempt is that, as you say, it's a kind of like exerting complete control where your only goal is no longer to have control anymore. <laughs> and if you put yourself in a situation where you're like, you know, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I'm swimming out in the ocean as far as I can go. I, my hope is that 
I will swim so far that I won't be able to swim back, but there is still this element of chance in there because I'm still swimming. I like that your idea there that there's this kind of, okay, maybe this is the only way I can stop controlling. I do think that for people, I've noticed this in the past six months or so, as my own relationship with suicidal thinking has undergone this revolutionary change, which I can't entirely account for. But I think part of it has been that I am increasingly somehow or other able to let go of control in other aspects of my life. And as I let go of this, recognizing that I don't have this control anyway, that I thought I had, or that I had to keep all these balls in the air, you know, that I just have to let all that go. Suddenly life does feel less burdensome. It feels less like something that there's less suffering. Yeah. And, you know, I think towards the end of the book, you provide some tips, I guess, you know, tips and pointers, right? For those people who may find themselves considering suicide. And, you know, one of them, you quoted Voltaire and, and you said, look, just keep busy, right? Go do something. So when you feel like you're suicidal, go for a walk <laughs> or, or something like that. But some philosophers might say that is a form of avoidance, right? Pascal would say that's like divertissement. You just keep yourself busy and yeah, you won't kill yourself, but you'll also kind of avoid having to confront this philosophical question of whether what's the point of living and so forth. And, and I think you talk about cowardice in the book a lot. And some people accuse suicides of being cowardly, right? They don't have the courage to confront life. But, you know, you could flip that around and say that, no, the people who don't commit suicide, right? Like they're the cowards, right? Because, <laughs> or at least the ones that aren't seriously willing to engage the question, right? Are ones that are cowards and they just keep themselves, you know, busy, busy, busy and distracted. Yeah. So Pascal and Kierkegaard, the great Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard are both so great on this question and the ideas that you're raising. Now, we should be careful because when a person is in a moment of real crisis, when they're like right on the brink, then I think distraction, busyness, this kind of thing can be very helpful. And the reason I think it can be helpful is when you're really in that moment of crisis where you are thinking of taking your own life and you're maybe about to do it, let's say. I've sat on the edge of buildings. I've woken up in hospitals many times after having made an attempt. I know what this moment is like. And your thinking at that point is not clear at all. And so you should have, in advance of that moment, if you know you're predisposed to this, you should have some strategies in place to distract yourself. And distraction at that point, I think, is a fantastic tool. You should get up and take a walk. You should text a friend. You should consider calling a number like 988, the mental health line. You should, like a friend of mine does, who's a great um, suicidologist and survivor of many suicide attempts, Desiree Lestage, go get yourself a Frappuccino or like I used to do, go get yourself a McDonald's ice cream cone, by all means, because your thinking is not clear. You need to recognize, you need to open the blinders a little bit so you can see that there are other options. You need to lessen the pressure a little bit and ease the pain a little bit because you're not thinking clearly. But now that said, when we're talking about dark nights of the soul and we're talking about despair and anxiety and these profound questions about the meaning of life, I was speaking with my students about this last week. 
for Kierkegaard, it's a little bit like God is stroking your cheek, you know, when you are in despair and saying, okay, here I am. Or for those who don't believe in God, like the great Buddhist philosophers, they will tell you, okay, now this is the moment when you are actually confronting how difficult it is to be a human being, how profound the thought of death is actually, for example, and how much you might just be wasting your life or sleeping through your life, just distracting yourself. You know, and each, if all you're doing every day is just trying to kind of survive the day until the next day, well, we all know where that winds up. There has to be some way to actually recognize the importance of being alive today and turning towards the actual fact of the vitality of your own particular existence, that you're, this is not something you want to avoid. This is something you want to experience. It's all that we have. All that we have is the fact of our own experience and the fact that we share this with others and we can love each other. And I would suggest, and I, Pascal and Kierkegaard and every Buddhist philosopher would suggest that you can't really love other human beings until you start engaging with these meaning of life questions that do require tremendous courage and do require you to turn away from constantly distracting yourself. You know, when your five-year-old says to you, as my five-year-old son says to me too often, daddy, put away your phone. That tells me that I've got to be in my life and not just spinning away from my life. Yeah. And I mean, this, I think it kind of relates to your work on deception, right? And honesty, this is really your core area of interest in philosophy, right? And you talk about, I guess, honesty as, of course, a virtue, but but also it, honesty, like pathological honesty can kind of get in the way of creating a lot of meaningful things in life. And I think you said something in the book on love about how love and some form of dishonesty are entangled, right? Is there something that we can draw on that with respect to the suicide question in terms of how we engage honestly with our lives? I think so. And I think, thank you for bringing my thinking and love and lies into this discussion, because I think we often have a sort of confused idea about what authenticity is and being an authentic human being. And this could lead us towards despairing states. I have this one um, person I've been speaking to frequently who she is often on the brink and I'm often trying to talk her off of it. And I think part of what is going on is that she feels like she is somehow inauthentic and this is making her suicidal. And what we, when we're thinking about love and we're thinking about the meaning of life, what we have to think, try to remember is that it's fundamentally a creative thing. And when you're creating something, you have these moments where you might feel like you're at a remove from ordinary reality. You know, when Shakespeare writes about this, he says, love's best habit is in seeming trust, for example. So as Hemingway says, there's only one way to find out whether someone is trustworthy, and that is to trust them. You have to kind of project yourself out into the world in a way that kind of uh, feels sort of inauthentic or fake or made up or creative in order to get the kind of good things that come from those relationships that depend upon your 
willingness to both be creative, and that is always is going to feel like all art does, it's always going to feel like it's somehow or other removed from the truth, that now we're in the realm of appearance rather than the realm of reality. And also at the same time, making yourself as vulnerable as possible, which is an incredibly scary thing to do. It takes a whole lot of courage and also sometimes can have this funny element of inauthenticity to it, where you feel like it's hard to discover in some ways where your vulnerability lies because we have so many barriers against being vulnerable to someone else. We have so many shields or walls that we've erected against being vulnerable that sometimes we feel like we are less ourselves when we are making ourselves more available. So I think you have to be willing to rethink your notion of what authenticity is. And if you can be willing both to be more creative and more vulnerable, I think that you will make yourself a more loving person. I also think you'll make yourself much less prone to thinking that life is too much for you because then you might be able to see it relates to our last point. You might be able to see that even your darkest moments are kind of opportunities for sharing yourself with another human being. I think this notion is that something like a marriage. It's a work of art. It's a creative act. And like any other creative act, you have to imagine it before you execute on it, which is another way of saying kind of fake it till you make it, right? There's an element of that. And I love, you know, the story from Much Ado About Nothing, right? The canonical version of this, but isn't this sort of Nietzsche's fundamental insight that the life of meaning is effectively a creative enterprise? Yeah, this is absolutely Nietzsche's fundamental point that the life of meaning is a creative enterprise, that in order to be, you have to seem that you, yes, you're going to have to fake it till you make it. And then that's still going to involve this kind of ongoing faking it till you making, make it. As you say, in a marriage, it's very much this way. I would suggest that once you are no longer actively, creatively involved in projecting this marriage forward, that's when the marriage is no longer as secure or secure might not be the right word, but dynamic and vital as it needs to be. Once you're no longer invested in it as this creative project that is going to always involve, as you say, faking it till you're making it, that activity of constantly creating together is what constitutes the commitment to each other, I think. So then it requires sort of constant maintenance and patching and modifications. Constant. Yeah. yeah constant. And as you say, this, this is the central thing of Nietzsche's entire philosophy is the idea that, look, you cannot, this appearance reality distinction is itself the mistake. The seeming and being have to come together. Let be be the finale of seem. The only emperor is the emperor of ice cream, as Wallace Stevens famously wrote. Now, in your books, you recount, there's a lot of memoir in not only your nonfiction, but also in your fiction, right? So in the How to Sell book, you never mention those episodes with the pistol in that book. I think you're portraying a different sort of character. It's part you and part not you. But you point to these suicide attempts or thoughts going back to being two years old, right? <laughs> I mean, and you also say something about how there's an element of narcissism, right, involved in both alcoholism and in suicide, something about wanting to be at the center of attention. 
And I was wondering if you could talk about that and what drives that and what heals that, right? How do you shed that and, you know, decenter yourself to some degree? Yeah. Well, I'm just going to have to speak the truth about this, that the flip side of self-loathing is self-aggrandizement. And that as long as you are wanting to, as long as I'm speaking from my own experience now, I can't talk about other people. And there are going to be some people who hear this who don't like this because they've lost loved ones to suicide and they don't want to think that this person is like Clancy, who his self-loathing came from his self-aggrandizement, his exaggeration of himself. And I respect that. Look, for those of you out there who've lost loved ones to suicide, I want to tell you that person was probably battling against suicidal ideation for a long time. There are a lot of people now, most famously Thomas Joyner at the University of Florida, who say that there is no such thing as a, a spontaneous suicide. They've been fighting against this thought, bravely fighting against this thought. I bet you've been helping them stay alive, and then eventually they couldn't fight anymore. But now, speaking entirely from my own experience, the exaggerated focus on myself and wanting to be the center of attention, wanting to be the star of the Clancy show, also made sure that I was always failing at being Clancy. I was never living up to the, to, to the expectations I had for the star of the Clancy show. And this is a big part of what invested me in this idea that I was constantly failing everyone around me, constantly disappointing everyone around me, and constantly disappointing myself. And so what had to happen, as you point out, in order for me to stop feeling that way is to kind of recognize that I was just one human being like all the other human beings around me, no more important, also no less important, and that I didn't have to think about my life in those terms, in terms of self-importance and consequently flip side self-eradication, that it could be much more about relationships rather than this one individual who was doing all these things or failing to do all these things that he had told himself that he had to do. And I think that just letting go of that notion of yourself a little bit will help anyone who is struggling with the thought of suicidal ideation. Just like, let go of the idea a little bit that you matter so much, either in your successes or in your failures, and start to just kind of think that, well, what about if other people's successes and failures matter at least as much as yours do? Maybe they even matter more than yours do. Maybe you could even take more pleasure in someone else's success than you take in your own. And if you think that way, suddenly you might find your own existence much less burdensome. Now, I think that probably the leading therapy for alcoholics today is Alcoholics Anonymous, right? I mean, I think it's kind of under-theorized in the sense that it's this phenomenon that so many people rely on. And yet I haven't seen like a good philosophical, sociological, or anthropological study of what actually goes on here, right? What does this represent? And this guy, Bill, I mean, he is maybe not a philosopher in the ranks of Kierkegaard and, and Pascal, but certainly in terms of impact, very impactful. So how can we explain this as a social phenomenon, Alcoholics Anonymous? What does it do for people? 
And I did an interview with Edward Slingerland, who's a philosopher who wrote the book on alcohol. And he points out that alcoholism and addiction, he thinks of it as it's really a modern phenomenon, right? We didn't have all these alcoholics in ancient Greece or in early Christian times or in the Middle Ages. And so is the kind of alcoholism and addiction, is it kind of like a symptom of a cultural illness? And is Alcoholics Anonymous kind of a plug, a substitute for, I guess, some religious experience that is lacking in modern society? Well, I do think I agree with many of your points there. First, certainly I agree it is under-theorized. The notions of the importance of both confession and just the ability to talk to other human beings without shame, with good humor, with people where you sort of have a kind of guaranteed acceptance and no judgment is, despite the fact that we recognize that this is the core, at the very core of not only 12-step recovery programs, but any kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, is still very much under-theorized. Freud, who's just kind of modern version of the confession, also still with the, his many great interpreters in the 20th century, still under-theorized. But, and yes, I know my own father who was a raging alcoholic and then a lifelong attendee of AA meetings. I used to always say, okay, boys, you know, entertain yourselves. I'm off to a meeting of the drunks club. Used to say that AA was just another religion. And he was like, they're all still they're all still drunks. They just have now they've got a different drug. The, their drug is AA meetings and it's just another religion for replacing their former religion, which was alcohol, which was replacing a probably a former absence of religion, which is whatever religion that they may have practiced before, before becoming drunks. I do think that the wonderful writer George Saunders opens his book, his recent book on writing as a practice with this observation. We live, you may have noticed, in degenerate times. And this is, of course, a traditional way for a book of Buddhist philosophy to open with someone saying, we are living in degenerate times. I think it's true. We are living in degenerate times. I think addiction is becoming more and more a facet of our ordinary lives. And I think it's becoming more and more insidious. Alcohol addiction, one thing about it, the good thing about it is it tends to get flagrant in its later stages. So the person actually at some point is probably going to have to confront her or his addiction or will be confronted by other people about her or his addiction. Addiction to an iPhone is not something that you're going to get confronted about probably, although my five-year-old confronts me. Addiction to marijuana, which we're just about to, we're just beginning to understand in our culture as it becomes more and more socially acceptable is we're we don't get it yet. We don't know how we're going to handle it and what that's going to look like, but we know it's on the rise. And, you know, I think that we have been talking a lot as, over the course of this conversation about one basic idea, which is that there's this, some kind of connection between intimacy and the meaning of life and that we can't really get intimate with each other until we're undistracted and we can't really get intimate with ourselves until we are undistracted. And an addiction is just this way of running away, of escaping from the terrible, scary 
a vulnerability that comes with intimacy and um, ultimately that comes with the fact that your life really does have meaning and it's really, really, really important. But it's, it's a frightening thought, actually. The more you think about that thought that your life is really, really important as a function of its interaction with other people's lives, that is scary and maybe ought to be a little bit scary, but being willing to embrace that scariness. You have a chapter in the book that says relapse is part of recovery. And of course, that's a saying that they use in AA all the time. But I think you dig into that by talking about kind of all or nothing thinking or kind of on-off thinking and that this was critical for you to kind of overcome that binary thinking and to understand that there can be degrees of intimacy, maybe degrees of acceptance. There can be progress. Why is it, do you think, that people fall prey to the kind of on-off thinking or binary thinking when in the end of the day, the only real binary is you know life or death, right? Yeah, and even those, according to some people like Thich Nhat Hanh, who I mentioned earlier, he says it's really important to recognize that death is just a concept, just like life is just a concept and that we're dying a little every day. Living is dying. So even that binary, we might want to call into question. But I think it's for the same reason that you've been focusing our attention on very helpfully, that we want to cling to these concepts so that we feel safe and secure where we are. And it's much easier to feel safe and secure if you can feel like, okay, good or bad. This is the good Clancy. That is the bad Clancy. This is the sober Clancy. That is the drunk Clancy. This is the recovering Clancy. This is the Clancy on his upward trajectory. This is the Clancy on his downward trajectory. You know, this is the loving Clancy. This is the careless, irresponsible, bad father Clancy. If you cling to those categories, they make you feel like you're kind of stable on your feet. But the fact is, life is much more complicated than that. And these are really just concepts that we're laying on top of our experience. And we maybe should be a little bit more flexible, a little bit more nuanced a little less judgmental, both with ourselves and with other people about the ways that we sort through experience. I believe this only because of my own, I learned this from alcohol. Alcohol has been a great teacher for me. And one of the things that it has taught me is that the sober Clancy versus the drunk Clancy is, you know, these are very much on a continuum. And if I were to relapse again, I would not think, okay, oh, look how I have failed. Look how, you know, all this time that you were not drinking and now you took a few more drinks again, or even took a few drinks and didn't tell someone about it, didn't tell anyone about it. I wouldn't think, oh, Clancy, you really let yourself down. I'd be like, okay, well, yeah, there you go. There's another <laughs> experience and you've got to keep going. And I think it's just a better way of trying to approach trying to get a little bit closer to the reality of our lives rather than being at this removed from the reality and acknowledging that our that our sort of way of trying to make life rigid it just isn't realistic it's going to wind up making us more confused i do think that being maximally open maximally vulnerable with other people trying to move in that direction is part of why AA works and part of why this kind of dogmatic thinking that has been so destructive for me, this on-off thinking, I am 
either safe or I am unsafe, why it's been unhealthy for me. Because when you're being really vulnerable, you do feel unsafe, but you're not as unsafe as you think you are. Yeah, and I think you talk about how knowledge that something is always available kind of dampens your desire for it, right? Whether it's with alcohol or with suicide, right? So with suicide, knowing that it, it, if you don't do it today, you can always do it tomorrow, right? It's always there, and that's a source of, of comfort, right? That means that there isn't this sense of urgency that you have to execute on. I think this is really important to remember with every kind of addiction that we engage in, is that if you start, if you no longer make this thing, this, you're so right to bring up this question now because it relates directly to this dogmatic thinking. If you sort these things into good and evil, and so this is completely unavailable to me, you know, this is just forbidden. This forbidden has this allure and it pulls you back. But if you start to say, as you did, that this is like on a spectrum, oh, I could have this if I wanted, then all of a sudden you don't have that clingy relationship with it anymore because you can say, I can do it if I want to. I can kill myself today. As the great Romanian philosopher Choran said, he said, when people come to me and talk about suicide, I tell them, look, suicide is a positive act. You can do it whenever you want. So feel good because you can always, you can do it today. You can do it tomorrow. Why not wait around and see if something interesting happens? And he says, and I think it should make them feel better. And generally speaking, it does make them feel better. And I think that's right. Waiting a day, this wisdom that comes from AA and from the ancient Stoics, because it is always there, it makes it very easy if you know that it is always there. If I tell myself, you know what, I can walk out of the office right now and go get a glass of red wine at the pizza place across from campus. It's strange, but it makes it easier <laughs> not to do that, allowing myself the idea that I can if I want to, and there's no one to stop me. Whereas if I am like judging myself and oh, Clancy, that forbidden thought, and then it's going to start growing in my mind. But wouldn't it be fun? Wouldn't that be good? Don't you actually really want that? Yeah. I'm a terrible procrastinator, so I'm not too worried that if I start thinking suicidally, I'm actually going to execute because I'm good at rolling over my to-do list from day to day. Yeah, that's the nice virtue of procrastination in this context. Procrastinate your suicide attempt. All of you out there who might have suicidal ideation, recognize that procrastination is a virtue in this context. And remember what Dostoevsky said about the suicide, suicidal person, which is suicidal people are the most impatient mm -hmm. people. Yeah. If you can just be a little tiny bit less impatient then you'll realize you don't have to fix this problem today. You can fix this down the road sometime. Yeah, patience is one of your tips at, at the end of the book. But you know, going back to another binary, this relates to something I had a podcast. We talked about the bookshelf problem, right? Which is there's philosophy and then there's literature, right? Or memoir. And you know, most good philosophers are always citing literature. Right? I mean, they're, they're always referencing poetry. They're always referencing fiction. They're referencing memoirs. Can a case be made for maybe dissolving those distinctions to some degree? When you flip back and forth between your fiction and nonfiction work, does this engage completely separate aspects of who you are and how you think, or is it much more of a continuity? Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if we could be a little more unsiloed in our thinking? And this is, again, relates to the danger of dogmatism and the great virtue 
of curiosity and openness. And as I've been saying, vulnerability, I think vulnerability in a way is just another word for curiosity, actually, in terms of our real spiritual experience, especially with other human beings, the ability to listen, the great virtue of learning how to listen. When you start to learn how to listen, which, you know, it takes a long time to do, and I've only barely begun to try to learn how to listen, even just to try to learn how to listen to another human being, then you will realize, I think, as you say, that philosophy, literature, all of the poetry, all of these bookshelf problems, silos, the way we try and kind of sort particular kinds of conversations into these particular places so that we can say, no, now I know I'm going to get that nonfiction book. And that's because I'm a nonfiction reader. You realize that these are actually not the most helpful ways to try and learn a little bit more about life and a little bit more about meaning. And as you're quite right to say, all of the great philosophers and especially the very greatest, in my opinion, they're willing to blend genres to mix fiction in with their own lives, their own experience. Look at Plato when he's playing at the top of his game. He's talking about real experiences that he had with his teacher, then he's bringing in his own philosophical views and Socrates' philosophical views and using art to do it, despite the fact that he has this larger view that, that art is incredibly dangerous and appealing to poetry while mentioning at the same time the already ancient quarrel between philosophy and poetry. All of my favorite philosophers do this. And similarly, the best writers outside of philosophy who wouldn't call themselves philosophers for example, Dostoevsky, you know, bring in all this philosophy into their work and so much of their personal lives. So yeah, those people have been the great inspiration to me. I unfortunately, trying to live up to their example is impossible. The, these, these great heroes of ones, but at least you can do your best. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned that you teach a course on, on happiness, right? And, and then you said you mused that maybe you should be teaching a course on, on unhappiness. Have you launched that ladder course yet? What would that look like? Yeah, I might be teaching that course right now because I'm teaching a course right now called Buddhist Philosophy. And the Buddha is famous for having begun so many of his teachings with this observation, monks, this life is suffering. And when you take your starting place as a conversation about the meaning of suffering and what suffering has to teach us and trying to have a more informed, nuanced, and intelligent relationship with the fact of suffering, then your thinking about happiness and unhappiness really starts to shift, I think. And I am a great fan of Laurie Santos's class on happiness that she teaches at Yale. And I think she's a wonderful thinker. And I'm so glad she brings in all this positive psychology to these students. And I think she's helping a lot of students at an important time in their lives when they need help. But at the same time, I agree with my friend Rita Kotari, the, the great translator of, of Dalit literature who brought this fact to my attention. Um, Dalit is the name we, that they used to refer to as the untouchable class in India. And, and Rita has done wonders for the translating of the marvelous literature that has come out of those languages that are associated with the Dalit people in India. And she said, unhappiness is much more interesting to me than happiness. And what I think Rita was gesturing toward is that 
there's something confused about the idea that we should be chasing after happiness. That's something that actually makes things worse when you're chasing after happiness, in part because you probably are thinking that other people have something you don't. I'm, I used to worry about the first noble truth of Buddhism, that life is suffering a lot and think like, well, it's not all suffering. Come on, there's more to it than that. And I once made this complaint to my wife, the writer, Amy Berrydale, and Amy said, no, you're thinking about it all wrong. What the Buddha is saying there is that there's no velvet rope. When you look at Gwyneth Paltrow or Leonardo DiCaprio or Bill Gates or Elon Musk or whoever you want to look at and think, okay, well, now that person has all figured it out. No, the Buddha says, no, they're suffering too. <laughs> so once you realize there's no velvet rope, then you realize there's nothing you're doing wrong. It's not like you're making some kind of mistake and that's why you're suffering or that's why you're unhappy. It's just the situation. <laughs> so, so stop beating yourself up over the fact that you're unhappy or that you're unsuffering. And just once you stop beating yourself up over it, actually, it diminishes a lot. The Buddha teaches us this uh, famous uh, parable about the two darts. And the first dart is just the fact of suffering. And the second dart is all the beating ourselves up we do over suffering uh, and all the, all the elaboration we do on the suffering that we're having. And he says, the first dart, you can't do anything about that. That's human life. But the second dart, you can do a lot about. And, and that, I think, is accepting, for example, that unhappiness is just part of life. Yeah, I think we could do a whole podcast episode on the two darts, right? Because <laughs> I don't think that we are equipping people with the tools that they need to manage, whether it's discomfort, pain suffering, loneliness, or things that are completely natural and integral to the human experience. But I just want to end with one last question. In the book, How Not to Kill Yourself, you mentioned, I think it was in that book that you mentioned that when you were living in India, which you recently did, you were talking about, I guess you were, I don't know whether you're reading an excerpt from the book or you're, you were talking about some of your life experiences. And there was a poet that came up to you and said, hey, you shouldn't be sharing this stuff. And I found that to be a very interesting response, right? I guess, particularly from a poet. <laughs> I mean, how do you explain that? And I guess, is there any merit to the idea that maybe there's TMI, right? Hey, there's a lot of stuff in this book. Why don't you just write a philosophy book and we don't need to hear about all of your divorces and near-death experiences and alcoholic rages and so forth. Yeah. Well, I do think I took his question. You know, he's this very, one of the the, the most celebrated Bengali poets alive today, poet I very much respect. And I took his question very seriously because I agree, not only TMI and airing one's dirty laundry, but this kind of auto vivisection and the idea of, you know, we have so much of this contemporary confessional literature and there's a kind of, really, do you need to be airing all this dirty laundry and also his worry, like now you've put all these negatives, all these dangerous, all these unpleasant thoughts in, in someone else's head, you know? Um, I mean, there is some argument that there's a, the further problem, right? So are you like releasing a lab grown virus out into the world, right? I mean, you hear about these suicide clusters, which is kind of disturbing, but also fascinating in a way, right? Yeah, no, that also, one of the things when you're writing a book about your suicide attempts, you very much have the Werther problem, the fact that if a famous person particularly dies by suicide and it's 
publicized in, in a kind of sensational way, the suicide rate goes up. There's the opposite effect, of course, the Papageno effect, which is when you have conversations like you and I are having about suicide in the media, rich, informed conversations, the suicide rate goes down. So it's just literally statistically true that everyone who listens to this podcast actually has decreased her or his likelihood of taking her his own life, making an attempt. And the ripple effects of that will be felt by the people around them as well. But putting these dark thoughts out there, and for me, the reason that I think it's important to do it is just what motivated me to write this book was an essay I had written about, you know, I was writing an essay for a magazine about my stays at psychiatric hospitals and the editor of that piece had someone in his life attempt suicide. And he said, I notice every time you've gone to the psychiatric hospital, it's because you've tried to take your own life. And I said, yeah, that's true. And he said, can you focus on that? So I did. And then this, that piece went out into the world and got a little bit spread around the world a bit. And all these people started emailing me saying they were Googling how to kill themselves and they read that piece and then they decided not to. And that's when I was like, and I've only told a tiny bit of the story of my relationship with suicide. What if I told the whole story of my relationship with suicide? And indeed, it has been the case that now I have so many people who have written to me and said, yeah, I, you know, I had this one story I can quickly share a woman who had just tried to take her own life with three of her children in the car, in her garage. And she wrote to me and one of all three children survived and she survived. And one of the children was briefly hospitalized. And her sister wrote to me and said that she felt like my book was helping her rediscover her wanting to live. And then they had a problem because in the hospital she was in, they couldn't have hardcover books and the paperback wasn't out yet. So I told my editor, my editor had a soft cover printed up for her and sent to her sister who could then give it to her in the hospital. And as a writer, you know, as a writer of fiction, which is principally how I thought of myself in a lot of ways, you never, and even as a writer of philosophy, you never think that you might actually be helping another human being, you know, that someone you might accidentally or intentionally in this case, in the case of this book, you might actually save someone's life. It's a powerful feeling. It makes you feel like, okay, this is writing worth doing. And this is sharing worth doing, even though you know you're going to get attacked. And I've had a lot of nasty emails from people too saying, hey, my friend died by suicide. And you suggest that sometimes it's okay for a suicide to admit that he as I admit that I am a coward. I'm happy to admit that I'm a coward and that a lot of my attempts have been motivated by cowardice. Absolutely, 100% true. And people don't like that. Or as I was saying earlier, I'm an incredibly selfish person. I'm happy to admit it. Many of my attempts have been selfish acts. People don't like that either. They get angry about it. And I get that because they're in pain, they're hurting because they've lost someone they love to suicide and they want to defend that person. And I respect that. But if, yeah. If someone doesn't die as a consequence of something I've written, how many hundreds of nasty emails is that worth? <laughs> you know, I, I can take nasty emails. There's not a lot of refereed journal articles that can be given credit for saving lives in philosophy. But hopefully this title will lead to it popping up on search results when people Google suicide. So Really appreciate you joining me today, Clancy. Yeah, yes. People were saying they were Googling how to kill themselves. And so, yeah, hopefully so. Hopefully so. 
So the book is called How Not to Kill Yourself, but also there's this other wonderful book called Love and Lies from a couple of years back. And don't forget the fiction, How to Sell. I think it's still in print, right? It's a good one. Oh yeah. It's and still Bad print. Sex and a couple others. So thanks for joining me. Let's talk again soon. Thank you so, so much for having me on, Greg. And I appreciate you and this conversation so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.